and welcome back to the new podcast series from Square Mile, Behind the Screens, hosted by me, Jock Glover, the Strategic Relationships Director here at Square Mile Investment Consulting and Research. In this series of podcasts, we're meeting members of the investment teams from across the asset management industry whose funds we rate, and we're digging into what's going on in their minds, what they're thinking about. And this week, our guest is Paul Jordan. He's CEO of Amati Investors, and he's co-manager of the £660 million Amati UK listed smaller companies fund, which unsurprisingly aims to achieve long-term capital growth through investing in a well-diversified portfolio of UK smaller companies. Uh, our analysts have awarded it an A rating in our Academy of Funds. Paul, welcome. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Well, it's a delight to have you here. Now, Paul, you're one of four co-managers named on that fund, and you're the CEO uh, of Amati. So, Perhaps start us off. How do you split your day in terms of doing uh, investing, research, running the business, and how does that all fit together? Yeah, I've, I've been doing this for quite a long time now, so it doesn't seem kind of unusual or, or strange to me. But um, yeah, I mean, I will typically, um, you know, I'll be reading the morning news, which comes out from 7 a.m. in the morning, and I'll be plowing my way through things relevant to us first thing, catching up on what's going on. Um, we'll have a team discussion, um, you know, by kind of nine o'clock. Sometimes we'll have uh, discussions with our other investment teams in MRT. As you probably know, we have a, a strategic metals fund, which is like a global mining fund, and also a strategic innovation fund, which is a global equity fund focused on innovation. And um, we'll be talking to those teams at least once a week and with a kind of, you know, inter-team meeting uh, in the morning. Um, so we'll be, you know, be catching up on stocks first, then general ideas, themes, um, stuff going on in the market. So not, you know, not surprisingly, banking's been a big issue in the last couple of weeks. That will have featured. Um, I, I will probably normally have some, um, you know, a, a meeting or some activity to do with um, running the business, sort of for a management role later in the day. Um, not every day, but some days. Um, We'll some you know we'll have um, there's obviously board meetings, management meetings, and so on, which just fit in around that. I mean, I, I have a very supportive staff here who try to make that as sort of um, uh, as seamless as possible for me, so that um, you know that side of the job is not dominating what I do. And and you've got so four co-managers. Are you very collegiate in how you're making your decisions, or is it you do it by sector, or how do you, how do you carve it up? Well, we do divide up our work by sector in terms of who becomes a specialist in different areas, but uh, we also pretty strong believers in team working. So, yeah, it's it's um, it's very much run as a the fund is run by a team rather than just by an individual. And uh, yeah, we, we are pretty collegiate in the way we do that. And you mentioned there in your sort of introduction in terms of what you do during the day that um, the last couple of weeks banking has been a bit of an issue, and not a lot of. Uh, well-known banks in the small cap space they tend to be the the, the UK market um, there's one or two sort of challenger banks kicking around um, what what has the last uh, week or two meant for you in the portfolio well interesting yeah so in terms of the banking <clears throat> the, f- the first impact was finding out which of our companies had money with Silicon Valley Bank in the US or the UK and uh, we also run a venture capital trust and um, you know it's it's clear that a lot of both technology and um, um, medical technology companies banked with Silicon Valley Bank. And actually, I asked them, I asked one of our portfolio companies that did bank with them, you know, why are you with them? Because it seems strange to you and me. 
And, and actually, the answer was really interesting. The answer was that this company floated five or six years ago, um, and it was really a US-based company floating in, on AIM in the UK. And they needed to open a UK bank account, and SVB UK was the only bank that would do it in under 18 months. Okay. And that, that is actually it's a really important point because that is desperately bad for UK business that there's such a restricted list of banks willing to open a business bank account. Or, that was for a, for a yeah. UK corporate that was floating on AIM, couldn't yeah. get a bank to open an account for them in under 18 months. Yeah, and it's probably because they were US-based. And they, oh. those banks would just find them it's in the too difficult camp. They don't want to do the money laundering checks. They, it's overseas. It's um, it's a corporate deposit. And so you know, one thing that's become very clear is, and, and again, this isn't going to help this cause for uh, enabling businesses to open bank accounts more easily in the UK, is if you're a bank, you don't really want to deposit from a business because that'll be that'll go into your uninsured deposits uh, category. And you know, all the banks have had problems in the last few weeks, other than CSFB, different case in point. But actually, this would include them as well. But it's their problems were different. The American banks that run into trouble did so because they had a very high percentage of uninsured deposits. Yeah. So as soon as there's any kind of noise of problems, everybody rushes for the door because the deposits are not insured. And, and so that's like with uh, Silicon Valley Bank, where if you were a retail investor and you had whatever it was up to a quarter of a million that you'd get covered by their their, their, their equivalent. Of their exactly. Yeah. And, and over that, it's tough luck. It's okay. tough luck. And in the UK, it's £85,000, as you know. Yeah. yeah. So it's, it's a lower level. Whereas actually, and to your other point, then we, we do have a, you know, actually our biggest, our, one of our top holdings in in the small companies fund is a bank. It's what OSB. It, it used to be called One Savings Bank. And so, you know, we had to then consider are there any implications for OSB? And actually, it comes out incredibly well on all of these sort of anything you can throw at it. And, you know, just talking about that metric we just, uh, we were just discussing, OSB haven't published their level of insured deposits. But, um, you know, it, I've been told that one can assume it's kind of the mirror image of where SVB was in the US, and SVB was 95% uninsured. They're going to be in the 90% range of insured, which means their deposit base is largely, you know, general public UK savers saving up to, you know, up to £85,000 in a in an interest-bearing UK bank account. And that's what they specialise in, and they've got an incredible reputation for that. Um, so, you know, that can be a more differentiated position but in addition a lot of their savings are in the form of one and two year bonds maybe three year bonds too so their average duration of deposit is going to be between one and two years it's not instant access which was svb's problem yeah but, you know overnight everyone could see what happens you go online you try and withdraw your money it's an instant process 24 7 yeah um that's quite tricky and hopefully OSB doesn't take 18 months to open a bank account for the average retail investor in the UK. They, well, they, they, they're essentially because they don't do uh, current accounts. They just do savings okay. accounts. Just savings. And, they, and they, you right. can open it incredibly quickly. I, yeah. I'm, I'm a saver with them myself. It's been great. Um, and and it, it just sort of attaches to your bank account. And you can only pay from that and you can only get money back to that. So you, know, you can imagine that the money laundering regs are going to be much less onerous for that. Got it. Brilliant. So we talked about banking. We talked about OSB being one of your larger holdings in the portfolio. But what other themes are you currently running in the portfolio? What 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 else is going on in UK small cap space that you think is interesting and going to give investors a good long term return? Yeah, it's quite. I mean, we we make a great play always of being very well diversified in the fund, and 
you know, our, our basic position is we were looking for long-term quality growth companies. Um, and those, you know, those take all kinds of shapes and forms. And, and obviously when you're going through the kind of turmoil we're going through globally, what was once a long-term quality growth company can very quickly get marooned. And so, you know, some, some of what everyone's having to do at the moment is figure out, well, where is the quality growth going to be? And it's all in all different places. Um, it's it's very difficult, I think, right now to point to individual themes. You can't point to some, you know, clearly defence companies which were in the wilderness for, I don't know, 20 years after the sort of peace dividend and the um, the the, um, the collapse of the Soviet Union and so on. Defence became deprioritised. Defence companies really fell out of favour. You know, very sadly, that's going to be a theme of the next decade almost for sure. Not a lot of ways of getting exposure to that in the UK market. We we have one, which is Kinetic, one of the UK's sort of really strategic um, defence companies. Came, it was privatised out of the MOD and has a lot of their, it was their research arm. So it's a, it's full of their, you know, of, of military technology and also non-military technology. That's not pure military business. But, you know, that's, one's looking for sort of themes in the new world as, as to where it was. And there's all kinds of other themes to do with, um, uh, what actually our, our strategic innovation fund called for innovation frontiers. So you know, an awful lot is going on with uh, silicon technology and and, and semiconductors. There's, there's a huge sort of shift, uh, not just towards miniaturization and new silicon technologies, but but also the, the enormous challenge of uh, reducing our strategic dependence on China. That's going to be a massive theme of the next decade. It's going to uh, affect lots of industries. Uh, it, it's it's you know a great a great conundrum really is how does the West reduce its dependence on on China who you know China's the world's biggest exporter by a mile three trillion dollars a year um, reducing dependence on that is very very difficult uh, uh, and the chance we're talking about that a week or two ago in terms of trying to improve our or, or reduce our dependency on on silicon coming out of the Far East. Um, so the companies that are doing that, are, are they ones that people will have heard of or are they weird and peculiar sort of research companies? That yeah, these are generally, this is where you get into quite sort of technical areas and B2B businesses that won't be so well known. Right. Um, yeah, and, the, and there, there are, well, having said that, the kind of companies that are going to build new semiconductor manufacturing capacity outside of the US or Europe, uh, those are going to be quite well-known names. Whether it's you know TSMCs looking to open up in the states, um, and possibly Europe, that's not going to really come into the UK because you know we're now really too small a market to attract our own sort of big new semiconductor manufacturing capacity. We've got to really defend what we've got. Um, in our VCT, we've got a, a, a quite an interesting company called Encilica, which is uh, really about silicon chip design. Uh, in the small companies fund, we have an investment in AlphaWave, which is about um uh originated out of silicon ip uh to do with communication how chips communicate with each other and they have some of the world's leading ip for allowing smaller and smaller chips to uh have the the interface to communicate with other chips and uh, so that's they're kind of leading the way in miniaturization and they've now gone on to um not just sell ip but to actually produce their own chips uh in in opto electronics um, so you know, but these are not these are not going to be household name kind of companies. But right. you know, the, but this is quite strategic for the West. And you know, I, I think we've we've kind of had a decade as well where um, 
I think you know if we're being self-critical as a as a nation, we should really tell ourselves off for not understanding how to think with any kind of geopolitical strategy. And we've made a load of blunders, that, and, we, and you know we really need to kind of rectify that and get much better at understanding where our interests lie and how to how to defend them. How to protect and, defend them, yeah. yeah. So, and I mean, the other themes, of course, energy transition is a massive theme, and that's going to affect lots of sectors. It, it provides some in the, in the small cap world. It provides what are slightly painfully early opportunities. So you have to take, in many ways, quite a significant risk if you're going to start to invest in the technologies which might enable uh, energy transition. Um, and we've done that a little bit at the margin in the fund. We've got some small holdings and companies we think are going to play a really valuable contribution in providing technology. Um, they've been, and do you do that on a yeah. sort of a basket basis by saying, you know, there's there's five or six different companies out here that one of them might do it. And if one of them does it, it'll go up a hundredfold and the other five will go up. <laughs> how, how, do you, how do you play that? Well, it's that sort of risk. It's always easy to say a basket basis is a, a sort of excuse for not really scrutinizing things, but we we you know the investments we make are ones we're high conviction about um you know the, the problem with having to be very early is that you might lose a lot of money before you make it so it's a bumpy ride and it has been a bumpy ride but you know the ones we, we we're carrying a very small number of holdings but you know we think they're very high potential um despite the fact they've been a bit painful so far we you know we think you know they're still you know it's a bit like the dot-com boom where there was massive excitement about the, the you know the, the internet and what it could do and then it's everyone underestimates how long it all takes. Um, you know, energy transition, we're in a massive rush. But, you know, so far we spent 30 years you know, talking a lot and doing very little. Um, at some stage, this has to get really serious industrially. And and then, you know, we'll, we'll go into that. It'll be like kind of revisiting the dot-com boom. And if you revisit it in 2010, you did really well. Um, yeah. but, you know, that has to be a bit accelerated for energy transition, but it, we're still in that sort of, I think fairly early phase when it's it's a bit wild west. But you know, this if we're talking about the next decade, I think there will be some there will be some really important opportunities. And it's you know, it's our job to be very switched on to them and to really understand where the opportunities are and who might be able to capture them. And what keeps you awake at night then? So um you 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 are looking at small cap names, so the macro theoretically should be much less uh important relative to, you know. A, a, a global bank that gets driven by interest rate changes or whatever. What keeps you awake at night as a portfolio manager? Well, you know, we are we are in tough times at the moment. And, and effectively what's happened in the last couple of years is we've gone from some of the easiest monetary conditions we'll, we've ever seen in our lives. And again, actually, that was reminiscent of 2000 in the dot-com boom when money became free. In 2021, there was free money everywhere. And the the, the Government, the Western governments undertook this extraordinary uh, monetary expansion through QE, which just went crazy. They got completely out of control. And then, you know, we're now into the kind of the bust that follows that boom. And it's painful. We've got monetary contraction. Um, that we're going to you know, much tighter monetary conditions. And making that adjustment is really difficult. And, and it, it keeps fund managers like us awake at night because we're trying to figure it out quickly enough work out well, where can you go that you're going to be um you, there's still an opportunity that you're not just going to you're not going to be just as you know attacked by this uh, monetary contraction but you you can you, you know we need to be in places where they cannot just survive but prosper through it um and that's tough it's you know it's it, it, these are difficult conditions 
and overlaying that, of course, you know, in, in terms of, you know, awake at night is quite an extreme thing. So what really gets me, the thing that probably mostly bothers me about where we are is, is the fact we, we've got a hot war in Europe. And, um, you know, that, that, that I'm sure is on everybody's mind every day. It's certainly on mine every day. I, I'm yeah. following in detail what's going on. It's not only a tragedy, it's, it's a major threat as to what can happen in the decade and you know what we keep trying to keep a close eye on uh is the possibility that china begins to supply arms to russia and you know that is a if that happens that's that's a major step in the wrong direction it'd be very serious it would you know multiply again the problems that are coming out of that war and and send it in completely the wrong direction um so it's something we've got to keep an eye on pretty closely Cool. Um, now, you may or may not know, but um, every week I ask the person I'm interviewing um, to leave a question after we finish recording for the person, the following to be asked. Um, and last week we had another Edinburgh-based fund manager. We had um, Alex Peltel, uh, I can't even say it, Peltesky from Aegon, who's one of the, uh, the managers, uh, the co-managers of their strategic bond fund. Um, and the question he left me for you um was and we've touched on it briefly but it's i suppose maybe you could elaborate a bit it's how important is climate transition in your investment process and do you apply it to all of your investments and if so how and if not why not okay this is a big question and you know the the, the yeah, initial the easy answer, answer is answer, though. <laughs> it's massively important to everybody yeah um and yeah we've done a a lot of you know difficult investments into enabling technologies into companies we think can play a role and and uh you know it, it's maybe you know this is a in some ways a tougher question for an equity investor than a bond investor and bond investors have possibly you know they, they they've designed sort of green bonds and so on which are, are kind of all well and good but i don't think they're really gonna myself i don't think they're really gonna change that much um and you know underlying of, of course the question is well um the difficult questions of esg and the kind of battleground that's raging in the state about you know to what degree um if, if any and i think the answer is this has got to be pretty limited to what degree a fund manager is entitled to make any investments where uh the, the kind of commercial um aspect of things is is subordinated and you know and, and you know i think it's not our job to do that um, but however, and, and you know, this goes back to the old kind of Milton Friedman debate of the 70s, and apparently this was the most influential op-ed of the 1970s in the New York Times, was his uh, piece when he wrote about, you know, the only corporate social responsibility of a company is to make a profit. And, you know, that's an extreme way of putting it, and he goes on to explain things. Um, and, uh, you know, where we're coming from with that is, well, yeah, that's all well and good, but that the whole premise of that is that the legal structure and the the, um, the 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 regulatory framework in which companies operate is perfect and of course it's massively imperfect so you know the while ultimately i think we're only going to solve energy transition and and tackle climate change if government policy making steps in and does its job to um to shape the way commerce works to make it happen and and underlying that is the idea that you know the way you really make make a change in in climate change is you introduce a carbon tax you don't expect companies to do things voluntarily uh to the to the you know companies are doing a lot voluntarily and they're stepping in as much as they can but that's a bit of a random walk 
And it's never, if you try and create a business model into that environment, you're taking a massive risk. Um, whereas actually, you know, where this journey has to get to is serious government policy that really um, pulls everything along with it and shapes it and gives a, gives a proper business model to companies that want to facilitate the change. So this is quite a long-winded way to say, I feel we're really stuck into this question. We're at the kind of sharp end of it, really, as equity investors. Uh, I think we've done a lot of investing in things that make a difference. Um, I should also say, I think there's a lot of quite dangerous kind of nonsense in the public sphere about climate change. So, you know, one idea that's never gets challenged in public is the idea that if we shut down the North Sea, then somehow we solve the problem of climate change. You know, this is just fantasy land and, and just complete nonsense because it, it, if we shut down the North Sea, it does nothing. It doesn't impact demand one iota. So we'll just buy the stuff from somewhere else. Yeah. So, you know, the energy transition is all about reducing demand for fossil fuels. If you try and solve that by reducing supply, actually you create, you make things much worse than you've got to start at the other end of the spectrum. And, and, and it's a, yeah, fix it's the a demand. completely a demand problem. So, and and, and so, I'm just amazed when this gets talked about and that, that misconception is so deeply embedded in much of the public and it's never, it's not properly challenged. And that, that is actually quite problematic because it, you know, means that there's a lot of pressure on companies sometimes to do completely irrational things because they want to satisfy the public's demand for a solution which isn't a solution. Well, so I'm mean, running out of time, but I think you've given the uh, the government of today a couple of things to go and think about. Uh, one, one is how they uh, sort out the the strategic um, views of our country in, in terms of looking after our own uh, uh, our own interests, uh, and the other is to sort out uh, how to make corporations better uh equipped to deal with climate change and everything that brings with this as well as sharing some wonderful insights about what's going on in your portfolios and, and your views so all that remains uh today paul is to thank you as our guest uh for your thoughts and your insights uh to thank the listeners uh for their support uh, and if any of you would like to contact us please do via either our webpage, which is www.squaremileresearch.com or by emailing us at info at squaremileresearch.com. This podcast is only aimed at professional advisors and regulated firms and should not be passed on to or relied upon by any other persons. It is not intended for retail investors who should obtain professional or specialist advice before taking or refraining from any action on the basis of this podcast. Remembering past performance is not an indication of future performance. It is published by and remains the copyright of Squaremar Investment Consulting and Research. Squaremar makes no warranties or representations regarding the accuracy or completeness of the information contained herein. This podcast represents the views and forecasts of Squaremar at the date of issue and may be subject to change without reference or notification to you. Nothing in this podcast shall be deemed to constitute a regulated activity or an invitation or inducement to engage in investment activity, and it is not a recommendation to buy or sell any funds or investments that are mentioned during this podcast. Thank you.